I'm Dale Denwalt. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, Republican lawmakers at the state capitol are trying to curb the governor's emergency powers and add new barriers to the way Oklahomans put their own ideas onto the state ballot. For two months last year, Kevin Stitt was the most powerful governor Oklahoma has ever seen. Stitt became the first governor in state history to invoke the Catastrophic Health Emergency Powers Act in March 2020. He used that power to limit public gatherings and impose curfews on bars and restaurants. Now, some Republican legislators are reconsidering whether the office of the governor should have that authority. Capitol reporter Carmen Foreman is with us today to talk about all the goings on in the legislature. Thanks for having me. Carmen, what limits to the governor's power are lawmakers considering this year? Great question. Um, There's a lot of them. And (laughs) I don't know that the governor is going to sign any of them if they make it to his desk. Um, But so if you think about the past year, um, there are essentially limits to prevent the governor from closing businesses. And and I should say this is a, a proposed bill Um, would prevent the governor from closing businesses um, during the pandemic or specific businesses. Um, There's another bill that would prevent the governor from essentially limiting the sale of alcohol or the governor um, taking There's sort of this portion of state law that allows the governor to have broad emergency powers um, in the event that an emergency happens. And I think that has happened with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And so some lawmakers want to take that broad, vague statement out of law so they have more say in what the governor can and can't do in emergency situations. Um, There are also some bills to prevent the governor from closing religious houses of worship churches, things like that, uh, even in the event of an emergency. Um, And I think we saw here in Oklahoma that the governor didn't, he didn't really do that. Um, But in some other states, that's become sort of a a fiery topic, um, especially along, you know, First Amendment lines and um, freedom to worship, those sorts of ideals. Um, So if you take all of that as a whole, Basically, some lawmakers, a a more conservative faction of lawmakers, looked at the past year and they've decided that they don't want the governor to have as broad of power as he has had and has had to use in the past year. And if anything, they want the legislature to be more involved in sort of the emergency response process. I think it's important to point out that the state legislature made Stitt a pretty powerful governor even before the pandemic. What set this governor apart even before COVID-19? Sure. Um, Before COVID-19, the legislature gave the governor uh, hiring and firing power over five additional major state agencies. And so Um, That included things like the healthcare authority um, and the Department of Corrections. And so that that in and of itself was a big step toward adding power under the executive branch. Um, But one thing I should mention is that Oklahoma's governor is traditionally uh, very weak. 
governor, and that stems from, you know, the founding of Oklahoma and sort of the populist roots that Oklahoma sprang from, um, because the citizens who created the state essentially didn't want a super strong executive that had too much power. We have a state senator uh, in Oklahoma from Broken Arrow, uh, State Senator Nathan Dom. He's the author of uh, of one of these bills, uh, and his his legislation that he's proposing would prevent the governor from closing any business during a pandemic or a state of emergency without, I think, quote, scientific evidence that business uh, that the business being open contributes to disease spread. Um, from covering the legislature myself and uh, and watching politics over the last decade, I know that uh, Senator Dom uh, has a reputation of filing these uh, attention-grabbing bills. Um, many of them don't get all the way through uh, into becoming law. Does his legislation have a chance of passing this year? Is, is it a little bit more mainstream than what we're used to seeing from him? So that bill already made it through committee and um, it's still, he said it's still a work in progress because, you know, it's hard to, he's working out the kinks about what scientific proof you would need to close businesses. Um, But, you know, I would say that in the past year and just coming off of an election cycle, um, closing businesses or not closing businesses really became an issue in 2020. And a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans were talking about, you know, keeping businesses open and keeping the economy open. Um, And, you know, even in the special election in Senate District, I think it's 22, um, we see the Republican candidate there saying he he would never advocate for business closures. He wants um, people to be able to run their businesses, um, even in the pandemic regardless of the circumstances. And so going back to Nathan Dom, yes, he does propose some sort of fiery bills that are headline grabbing. This one is, it sort of falls on those lines. But I also think among the GOP controlled legislature, I think it has a pretty good shot of passing. Because I don't, you know, I don't know that there are a lot of Republicans that necessarily want to vote against, and it wouldn't be exactly this, but vote against closing businesses. And it's not like they're saying we're voting to close businesses, but they would be saying we're voting to, you know, give the governor the option to close businesses at some point, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, and even if, um, you know, even if they're on the line about supporting a bill like this, you know, how often does a pandemic come around where the governor has to think about closing businesses? So, you know, maybe there's your cover. Yeah, there you go. And certainly with term limits, the legislature won't be in office the next time the pandemic comes around. So not their problem. I mean, this current legislature, that is. <laughs> yeah, and there are, there are a couple bills that would limit the governor's powers in other ways. One would uh, limit uh, emergency powers to, I think, 30 days. Carmen, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do, do any of these bills have a shot at passing? I'm, I'm really curious because earlier you mentioned that the governor might not sign them if it reaches his desk. Between the legislature and the executive, there's sort of this constant power struggle, right? Like the legislature is always trying to check the governor. And if the governor oversteps his authority, it's not unusual for the legislature to sort of in their own way say, well, get back in line. Uh, This is our authority, not yours. So as 
to whether these things have a chance of passing, especially something that would limit um, emergencies to 30 days without legislative approval. Um, that's the sort of thing that the legislature and this specific legislator, um, Representative Jay Stiegel from Yukon, um, he views it as sort of like the legislature playing the role of checks and balances against the governor's actions, right? So and currently, the governor can issue an emergency order, and typically they only last for 30 days. And let's take for a good example the ice storm that happened last month. The governor issued a couple of emergency orders related to that. And in all likelihood, you know, that storm lasted for about a week, and in all likelihood, they, those orders won't need to continue for more than 30 days. And in most cases, you wouldn't need to continue an emergency order for more than 30 days. And so I, I can't say whether the bill will go the distance. If it does go the distance, I don't know that the governor would sign it. And if the governor, um, you know, let's say he vetoes it, well, then you need two thirds of the legislature to override him. And that's, you know, that's a lot to muster and very unlikely. Um, so all that to say, I don't know. It could happen. It could not. <laughs> a little bit uncertain at this point, for sure. Republican lawmakers also hope to tweak the initiative petition process. Um, that might be a term that people are unfamiliar with, um, but they may remember uh, Oklahomans having success in using these initiative petitions to get major ballot issues passed in statewide votes, things like Medicaid expansion, which we'll ask about in a little bit. Uh, what changes to this process do lawmakers want to see? So there had been a flood of bills or pieces of legislation filed on changing the initiative petition process. And as the session has progressed, only a few, a small portion of those have advanced. Um, the main thing I would point out is that in order to change the initiative petition process, for the most part, lawmakers would have to pass legislation through both the House and the Senate, and then it has to go to the ballot for voters to approve it. So for example, there were some bills to change the percentage that state questions would have to get at the ballot. So currently, if you get a simple majority, which is 50% of the vote plus one, your ballot initiative passes. Um, but they wanted to change it to, let's say, you know, 60% of the vote, which would be a much higher threshold and would make it much harder for some of these state questions to pass. But in that example, the legislature would have to pass that legislation and then that question would have to go before voters, as in voters would have to vote <laughs> on whether they want to make it harder for initiative petitions to pass. They would have to so, want to set a higher threshold for themselves. Exactly. And so a lot of those questions that would have to go before voters haven't really progressed this year. And that could simply be because, you know, this isn't a general election year, really. So there, um, it, there wouldn't be any sort of statewide vote. Um, so if the legislature wanted to recommend something on the statewide ballot, the governor would have to call a special election or it would have to wait until 2022. Anyways, what is still alive, uh, there are a couple 
proposals, one would allow for recounts of state questions, which currently are not allowed. Um, and then another, both of these passed the House this week, um, another would basically add additional words to the, the ballot title, the description of the initiative petition, and it would require that initiative petitions that would have essentially negatively affect state revenue um, would have to give sort of a fiscal impact statement. They would have to say what costs this initiative petition would have on a state agency. So Carmen, uh, one of the successful initiative petitions that citizens put on the ballot was Medicaid expansion that passed last year. Um, It was narrowly approved and we know that a lot of Republican lawmakers at the state capitol oppose Medicaid expansion. Is this legislation like? Do, do we have any evidence that this that the legislation that we're seeing to restrict uh, Oklahoma residents' ability to bring things to the ballot um, directly tied to the previous votes that they've cast, whether it's medical marijuana or Medicaid expansion? Um, the the state question, uh, uh, the criminal justice state questions. Um, is, is there a a known link, I guess, to uh, between these two? As for evidence, there's there's no evidence, right? That um, that lawmakers are pushing to change the initiative petition process in light of all these successful things that they didn't really like passing. So, you know, they weren't, a, in addition to not really supporting Medicaid expansion, they definitely, a lot of Republican lawmakers were not a fan of medical marijuana. And I don't think Governor Fallon was at the time either. And many of them thought that initiative petition was going to fail and go down in flames, which clearly it did not. So there's no clear evidence that this is the reasoning behind why they're doing it. But I, I think it's pretty safe to say that, that there's a clear link there. Um, and let, let's, let me give you another example, right? So after the very hotly contested 2020 presidential elections, we now see state houses in uh, Georgia, Arizona, and a lot of Republican-controlled states that, um, you know, supported they, where the... Republican lawmakers supported Trump are now looking to change some of the voting laws in those states. So in specifically in Georgia and Arizona, both states that had very contested elections in the presidential race and states that, you know, Trump contended went for him, but actually went for Biden. So you know, similar example in that you can't specifically say that those lawmakers are looking to change the voting process specifically because of that election. But all indications point to that election being the cause for the wanted change. Yeah, at least at least it got on people's minds, I guess. And then they started thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And one of the Republican uh, lawmakers, Eric Roberts, who represents, he's a new lawmaker for Oklahoma City. He's pushing one of these bills to alter the initiative petition process. And he said that when he was essentially campaigning, he knocked on a bunch of doors. And this was after the passage of State Question 802, Medicaid expansion. And he said that a lot of pe- folks that he talked to said that they just, they weren't, they didn't, they knew that Medicaid expansion was on the ballot and they knew that's what they were voting for or against, but they didn't know 
the costs associated with that, even though I would say that the Oklahoman did a pretty good job of covering the costs associated with that state question. And I think a lot of other media outlets covered the costs associated with the state question. But, you know, there's still people that maybe miss that information. I think uh, another example um, of, you know, legislation maybe keying into recent events, you know, with a, at least some sort of a perceived link would be um, some legislation in, in the legislature right now that would give the state health commissioner hiring and firing authority over the county city county health departments in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, which are separate entities from the state health department. There's legislation out there that would give our state health commissioner over the state health department hiring and firing authority over city county health departments um, that are unrelated to his agency. And uh, I think we've seen recently some uh, decisions and recommendations from OKC and Tulsa's health departments diverting somewhat from the state. Is that fair to say, Carmen? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess they changed the bill a little bit. So it's not the the state commissioner would have direct hiring and firing power, but that he would have a say in the hiring and firing process, um, which, you know, I would say the county health departments, that put them a little more at ease, but it seems clear that they still don't like the bill and they think it's unnecessary because they, I mean, they're largely supported by local tax dollars. And so they feel it's unnecessary for the state to have a say in that. Well, Carmen, we do appreciate you taking us through all of these bills. It's so interesting to see how legislation in light of the pandemic is maybe trying to tip the balance in some places here and there regarding who has power over what, who has authority where. I think we might be seeing a lot of changes in that respect in the coming months. So Carmen, thanks so much for taking us through all of that legislation. Yeah, no problem. You've been covering a lot of it yourself with the open transfer stuff. So maybe you'll talk about that in a future episode. Oh, maybe so. We'll, we'll see. All right. Thanks, Carmen. And thank you for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahoman subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. And you can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.